everyone, this is your host Asad Badruddin for the Stablecoin podcast. Uh, and today we have Dawson Baker, who is the head of Project Zero at TokenSoft. Yeah. And you are formerly the lead counsel at Synapse FI. Yep. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, uh, no, I appreciate you uh, having me on. Um, just uh, so slight disclaimer, um, all of these opinions are clearly mine uh, and I this is not legal or financial advice. You need to pay somebody to get that <laughs> advice. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, maybe I can talk a little bit about why I wanted to have you on the show. Uh, so you have some fascinating threads on Twitter about stable coins. That's how we, that's how we could talk about. It. And then I also uh, think it's really interesting to have an outside perspective on stable coins. Um, my guests so far have been people leading projects on stable coins. And I thought it'd be really cool to have your commentary and criticism where uh, you think it's necessary about a few projects in the space. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so, you know, my background, uh, you know, I went to law school to get into investment banking, um, graduated in 2010, which is basically the second worst year to do that. Um, 2009 was the worst year. I did investment banking for about four or five years. Um, left that company t- trying to move towards more fintech and kind of where I see um, just finance generally going. Um, ended up at a company called Synapse Pay, which is now Synapse FI. Um, and they're a banking API. Our first product market fit was an ACH and KYC and AML API. And our very first customers were cryptocurrency exchanges. Um, and as a result, um, basically starting in like late 14, early 15, I had one f- foot in fintech and one foot in basically the, the back underside of cryptocurrencies. If, if you're the connection to the bank, you see, frankly, all the messes from a compliance standpoint, from a fraud standpoint. Um, and so I, I learned a lot about uh, how cryptocurrency exchanges work and like what works well and what doesn't work. Uh, you know, but as Synapse grew, we grew beyond just an ACH API into a full-blown banking API around this idea that anything a bank can do, uh, we're gonna turn it into an API. And so today that's deposit accounts for consumers, for businesses, uh, FBO accounts, that's money movement, ACH, wire, checks, debit cards, uh, and, and a whole lot of kind of future plans from there. As I was at that company, I, I started to, not started, I, for a long time I had this nagging feeling that um, I was only partially in fintech and, and, and where the space was going was definitely what was happening in the cryptocurrency um, world and, uh, you know, along with a lot of our customers. Um, started, started working on a lot of side projects and advising people and, and finally decided that uh, I just wanted to be full-time in, in cryptocurrency projects. So I left Synapse uh, earlier 2018 um, and ended up now I'm head of special projects at TokenSoft. Um, and so uh, we call that Project Zero. Um, and that, that's based around like what is the future of security tokens, um, i.e. what is like traditional finance look like in the future? Um, which is a slightly overlapping to what do banks look like in the future. Yeah. I think that's a great segue to talk about some of your tweets, uh, including one where you say, banking APIs are at the risk of losing to USD-backed stablecoins. And then you also say cryptocurrencies are a completely different experiment than stablecoins and banking APIs. So what do you mean by that? So... If you are in banking in the U.S. or Europe, and by banking, I'm talking traditional banks that take deposits, there's been this movement towards providing fintechs, and as a result, their users to access to their data. 
Um, and so uh, the Europe, Europe just opened up, uh, they by law required all banks to implement essentially a read-only privilege a, a OAuth into their accounts in Europe. With uh, the future, they'll also have read and write, i.e. move money. Can you explain what that means for listeners that might not be Yeah, so for, for non-technical, just think of it as like a read permission is like see the information inside of this bank account um, to be able to provide advice. For example, personal finance management apps um, can give you advice on how to save more money over time or move this little bit of money like acorns or a digit over here to save or to invest and to give you advice on like how you operate with your money. That's like what would a read-only access give you. A write privilege is basically editing something. Uh, And and in in the banking world, a write privilege would be moving money, opening accounts, changing privileges, changing information about you. Um, All of those are right type of privileges. And so the long and short of it is there's a a movement towards opening up these walled gardens. Uh, That has been currently done because uh, governments have required it by law. Banks don't want to do that because they want increased friction from money, money movement will ensure that the money stays with you is what it kind of comes down to. And they're, 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 they're at, they're afraid of essentially becoming less relevant um, when the user interface is a fintech. Um, and, and so that's, that's a little bit of concern. That's what's happening in Europe right now. The U.S. does not have that type of law. And as a result, there are no banking APIs. Um, and if there are, they're very surface level. And uh, that's not really a great path. Um, that's why, frankly, Synapse uh, FI is, has been successful, because we've essentially strapped banking APIs on our partner banks, on their partner banks. And with the idea of uh, developers who are creating new fintech applications to provide any sort of banking service can do that quickly and easily by integrating their application with what's called our API, which is essentially, it means application protocol interface. Uh, it's essentially a mechanism for one developer to integrate their application with another application. In our case, um, that's a banking, that's a bank. Yeah, so that's kind of the trend around APIs. So specifically with regards to the tweet. Uh, the whole point of open APIs is to open up banking. Like if you hold money somewhere, allow us to then do everything else you can do. Um, and, and the idea of APIs is the innovation can occur at the surface level, the user interface or the user experience level and less so at the storage level. And so at, at Synapse, we started to look like banks, kind of like uh, droplets or AWS servers. Um, they're likely to trend towards um, storage containers and uh, the cert- and this user interface, i.e. the websites and the apps, will be fintechs and all of these other types of applications. Um, that's the banking API movement. Um, when you look at stable coins, if you presume they will be successful, which I would debate on the different types on their ability to be successful, um, but if you presume they can be successful, I, would su- I believe that stable coins would probably provide a better, better developer interface, frankly, for, for developers to create apps on top of. Uh, so that's both storage of money and movement of money. And why, why is that? Banks move very slow, just, just to be frank. Uh, com- compliance is, is a hard lift. You're, you're always dealing with some sort of compliance person, compliance officer, changing or, or uh, trying to stop or undo something. That's, that's kind of one big picture overarching issue. But, but beyond that, I think there's, there's also just ease of integration. If we solve for how to deliver uh, a seed to a user and as a result allow for self-custody by consumers if that actually becomes a reality. 
um, then then it's highly likely that a stable API, stable coin, um, will be more competitive for a developer fintech trying to create an application on top of it um, when compared to the alternative uh, version of just a straight up banking API. And if a stable coin does become mainstream, you don't think it will be burdened by compliance just the way a bank is? Uh, different ones will have different compliance requirements. Uh, USD backed or fiat backed, you know, one to one uh, stable coins most definitely will have a compliance burden. Um, I'm of the opinion that all of the one to one versions currently probably have a, a, a life cycle that, is, that will end at some point. Um, most of them uh, look at these in a very fintechy, it's not my problem type of type of uh, thought process. Um, and to specifically explain that, so the way a, a, a a fiat-backed stablecoin works is me, user, wants to get a stablecoin. I can purchase it directly to buy from them by depositing money, U.S. dollars, from my Bank of America account to the account of wherever the stablecoin is. Um, and in that scenario, I'm going to provide them all of my identity information. They're going to run KYC and, and money laundering checks on me. And they're basically going to prove me to get the tokens because that's what it's going to come down to. And then these tokens will trade freely. So I, I'm going to send it uh, to, to, to Abram or to, to John or to Jack or whoever, and it will move throughout the system. And then the, the, the last person who has it and wants to redeem it can go back to the bank and say, I want my money back. Um, and they're going to perform the same identity checks and any money laundering checks. Um, that's great for the on and off board um, stance. And that's great for the fintech. From the bank's perspective, that just doesn't work you need to kind of know who has the, all of the money at all the time. And so um, the, the way it's going to work is essentially this. Uh, regulatory audit number one. Hey, bank, it looks like you have this large account that's grown a lot over time. Let's call it, you know, $100 million in this account. Whose money is this? Bank's going to go like, oh, cool. I have this KYC and AML procedure. Um, I, uh, I know who the person is deposits, and I know who the person is who withdraws. and approximately. 40% of that is held by people I know. But the other 60%, I actually don't know because they haven't asked to withdraw. And the regulator's going to be like, okay, that makes, kind of, that makes a lot of sense. How about you know the answer to that by the next regulatory audit? And so what's going to happen uh, as these things grow uh, is you will most definitely have an issue come regulatory audit number two. They're going to want to know where the other 60% is being held. And the fact of the matter is, if stable coins act like cryptocurrencies, they're going to go places that banks don't necessarily want to be. And uh, whether you believe in those type of activities or not, uh, illegal or not illegal or just frowned upon, banks can't live in that world. Um, and so that's generally the flaw of most USD or fiat-backed stable coins. Can I ask you a couple of questions on this? Yeah. So why wouldn't the bank know 60%, uh, the, the identities of the 60% if uh, there is KYC on the on-ramp? They KYC only on the on-ramp to purchase and on the off-ramp to withdraw. So after I purchase it, um, I can send that stablecoin anywhere. I can send it to anybody who's got a stablecoin address. They don't KYC and AML those people. And so all of the, the movement in between via exchanges and withdrawal from exchanges, the bank has no idea whose money that is. And in the in banking world, that just doesn't work. If you send it to a wallet, the bank doesn't know who it is. But if you send it to someone who then send, uh, cashes it out, then the bank knows who that person is. They have to, yeah. And that's kind of their, pro their process today. And like that, that process makes sense. Um, you know, I, I've talked to a number of banks and, and people who are creating stable coins. I understand why they've gone with that approach. They're using what's called an FBO account for benefit, up, for benefit of account. 
the funds are held in trust co name or bank name. Uh, you know, developer or token issuer co is, is likely agent of uh, the bank to do that. Um, these are regulatory structures to keep the fintech out of like meeting licenses. This is a rather common setup, but um, what's uncommon in this setup is not knowing the people in between. Won't this also apply for cash though? Like if you take cash out of a bank? But the cash is not in the bank anymore. The cash has no obligation. The bank has no obligation to cash. It is, it is very similar, but the difference is the funds definitely held at the bank. Um, yeah. that's, that's, that's the problem of, of dollar-backed ones or fiat-backed ones. Got it. Did you have another point you were going to say? Yeah, I, I, I think there's, there's definitely a, a spot for stable coins. So um, there are ways to fix these flaws. And generally when I try to help people who are working in the space, I try to help them identify the issues and, and like fix these things. Because at the end of the day, you're trying to just provide a better version of some sort of technology that provides a better user interface and user experience. I think there is room for a dollar back one to provide a better user experience if done well. But any, yeah. And one of the things you say is there, a stablecoin is not a cryptocurrency, if I have you right. A, a fiat back one. Now, they are not censorship resistant. In the example of regulator, I mean, they're going to, they will eventually, um, add in blockchain analysis and they're going to realize that, oh, you know, 5% or 3% is held at this illegal gambling operation or illegal, whatever, some sort of legal operation that they can't bank. Um, and so it's simple. They're, they are the contract creator and they can freeze and burn funds. Um, and so as a result, it doesn't have this, this idea of self custody means nothing um, because uh, they won't, they're just going to freeze the address and it's not going to be able to move anymore. So your money is not money anymore is what it comes down to. Um, and so it, it lacks a lot of the attributes over censorship resistance, i.e. someone who has an opinion on this is a good idea or a legal idea or an uh, illegal idea. While it does give, you know, somewhat amount of finality in like the network, I, I would argue that um, the, the, the bank and the way the agreements are likely set up, they're, they're likely to have to also end up complying with, Regulation E. There's a whole lot of banking laws around uh, consumer protections in the U.S. Uh, those consumer protection laws are likely relevant to stablecoins. Uh, for example, uh, if someone transfers money out of your bank and you didn't authorize it, you have 60 days with your, the time you got your bank statement to go contest that charge. That idea exists in fintechs as well, um, and as a result, it would most definitely exist in fiat-backed stablecoins. That being said, they're not implementing those rules right now. Uh, they being the fintechs, but I would, I believe they probably will have to. I had a clarification about something you said. So if I buy a, a fiat backed stable coin and I send it to you, can the issuer of the stable coin make the stable coins you have uh, worthless? Just, just the ones I sent to you. Yeah, the way most tokens are deployed on the Ethereum network or any network, uh, you have an issuer, uh, you have a contract creator, and you have a contract manager. Um, my guess is most of these, the uh, creator or manager is Devco. Devco has an agreement with Trustco, Bankco, and they're under the obligation to enforce whatever the Bankco says, um, which will include modifying tokens and things within the network, whitelisting. Will, will probably be a thing and they'll probably also, I think most of these dollar-backed ones essentially have these management-like features is what it comes down to. 
per unit of token. Yeah, they're, they're, they are the manager of the smart contract that issued the token, which changes the privileges of said token. Yeah. Cool. This, this is fascinating stuff. A good example of that, well, a possible example of that is I know Tether had a certain couple hundred, couple 20, 30 million or something like that earlier this year or last year that supposedly was unauthorized and moved out of their wallet. Uh, those funds are frozen. They can't move now. Um, or at least that's what they said. I, I haven't looked at how Omni works and how Tether, how the Tether Omni contract works, um, but I'm inclined to think they have some sort of similar mechanism, at least on the Ether version of, of USDT. Interesting. Okay, so let, let's talk about a few of your other tweets. So you say, if you think a basket of stable coins is the answer to mitigating a single stable coin's flaws, then I have a basket of AAA mortgage-backed securities to sell you from 2008. Yeah, this one's uh, both in real life experience and, and also a whole lot of dry sarcasm. You know, uh, a basket of things is not a way to mitigate against the risk of a, of a, single, a single flawed asset. That's just naive um, and not, that's just not real. Triple A uh, mortgage-backed securities um, and a, a variety of real estate type of uh, investments that were created by investment banks and banks, basically mashing together a whole bunch of assets and selling that as one investment. And uh, what they were doing is they were mashing together um, a, a whole bunch of assets associated with consumer residential loans and mortgages, essentially. And uh, those were all rated, they were traditionally rated, you know, um, very high rated, you know, AA, AAA, like basically highly rated uh, investments by the by S&P and the and people who were doing the ratings. But by the way they were designed, they did not have all the same quality of goods in it. And, and frankly, they didn't model the market for market aberrations. Um, market aberration is exactly what happened in 2007 and, 2007 and 2008. And as a result, um, all of these uh, mortgage-backed securities, vast majority were, you know, worth pennies on the dollar because of um, the underlying, not all of the underlying assets, i.e. mortgages were created equal. Um, and the same is true for stable coins. Um, there's a whole bunch of people who are trying to create baskets of stable coins because one stable thing will be more stable when coupled with a whole bunch of other stable things. But I just think that's fundamentally flawed. I mean, a single, you know, if, if a single one of marginal size went down in that basket, the whole thing's worthless, right? If, if, if it's, if it's, why would you say, because you could argue mathematically the, the group would. Yeah, but, but let's just think about how you're going to put that together. You're going to create some sort of weighted index, like something based off of like uh, market cap and maybe some sort of risk factor associated with the token of said market cap. And so if Tether represents 30% of that market cap, but you don't want to give it 30% of the index because you perceive it as higher risk. And so maybe you, you have some sort of risk associated that puts it in 20% of the index as opposed to 30% based on the, the, the market cap. Um, if uh, the, the speculators are true and, 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 and Tether or a, any fiat-backed stablecoin is defunct, then you're automatically going to be a haircut of the value of 20 to 30%. And when one asset has an issue, you tend to start to sniff around at the other similar assets and then think about what is the issues that could be present there. And then you kind of have a snowball effect of like, what is the perceived value of this by investors? Got it. Right. So we have another one, uh, which says, IOU stable coins are prone to the following, attracting weak banks in the need 
of cheap capital and then attracting copycats uh, and stable coin, attracting copycat banks and stablecoin issuers. What do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, yeah, so these are two completely separate ideas. Uh, attracting weak banks in the need of cheap capital. Uh, the way uh, fiat-backed stablecoins work is uh, fintech tries to deposit as much money into the bank as possible, um, and they're either taking a very low percentage of, of interest or earnings on it um, or none. Depending on the investment directive and what type of account this is, it will change whether they earn anything off of it or something. Um, and, and so the bank basically has these um, very cheap capital if they want to do something with it. Um, if it's on the depository side of the bank, obviously that could be lent out. Um, if it's on the trust side of the bank, um, that's generally limited to whatever the investment directed of the trust, um, which for something like this is, is likely to be uh, dollar or dollar equivalents. Um, basically, uh, it's a great way to pump up your balance sheet is what it comes down to. And uh, that's why generally um, smaller banks that are trying to grow, that's, that's their objective, they're trying to grow. Um, they, they want, they're, they're willing to take on more risk than a larger bank. Some of that risk is warranted. Some of that risk is, you know, if they don't know what they're doing, which I believe small, some small banks don't know what they're doing, they tend to have weak compliance departments and, and they tend to have weak controls, which ends up allowing for some of these issues that I've alluded to. Um, it's kind of the idea behind that. Uh, large banks don't want these deposits. I'll just tell you that. They don't want it because they have balance sheet issues themselves around capital ratios, which is not relevant to this discussion, but uh, it, they also don't want it because of the regulatory burden and perceived compliance risk. And uh, you don't see that changing either? I think, I think uh, fiat-backed ones will continue to grow, especially when you have uh, good actors trying to do the right thing. And, and we're trending towards that. So like Gemini and all, all the different groups who are, um, trying to provide better versions, true USD. Um, th these are all steps in a direction to be more transparent and to provide a better version. Um, are they perfect? No. Um, are they better than uh, you know, Tether or other ones? Yeah, definitely. So, so it will trend that direction, um, but generally I believe um, stable coins in the sense of a cryptocurrency have shelf lives, i.e. they will expire. Um, because I don't think banks will be able to support many of them in the use cases they want to be supported for, uh, i.e. They, they can't be moved around freely without KYC and AML. And uh, that's, part of, that's a huge part of the cryptocurrency movement. Um, and so uh, with that being said, it will limit um, which banks will be involved and frankly, probably the likely size of what the stablecoin market will look like in the future. Do you see banks issuing stablecoins of their own? Yeah, definitely. Um, so HSBC, um, and so like in, in Hong Kong, there's like four banks that actually issue the national currency. Um, they're all authorized to issue their own currency. Um, and so if you look at the, the Hong Kong dollars, you'll see HSBC or whatever bank um, issued that. Issued that. Um, that's different from the U.S. where it's only issued by the Fed and then the banks have accounts at the Fed. I think we're going to see some sort of mashup of, of what happens at the Fed and banks in the U.S. versus what happens in countries like Hong Kong where banks are able to issue notes. Um, there's probably an, an argument that the Fed would be totally love for banks to um, issue stable coins, assuming they do the full compliance version that I'm alluding to, because they're doing all the technical lift for them. And, and frankly, like regulators are going to regulate 
And it's not their job that's going to get lost. It's going to be the bank's job or license to get lost when it doesn't work. Um, so I think they're probably, if, if you're looking at um, the way regulators tend to work, you know, they'll let you take risk, but they're going to let you, you're also going to know when your risk didn't work out. Um, and so uh, there's probably an argument that, that uh, governments like the, the Federal Reserve, or, or not governments, that's a quasi-government organization, will will allow for this at some point in the future. I think that's many years off in first world countries. It'll most definitely happen in the second and third world countries a lot faster. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I, I tend to believe cryptocurrencies generally will be similar to internet infrastructure adopted faster in areas that have less of similar high quality infrastructure. Uh, we have a whole lot of infrastructure that exists in first world countries like the US that frankly reduces the the spread between user experience. So for example, like I know how to spend money online. I use my uh, credit card. I put in my uh, details. I buy whatever I want from Amazon. I'm used to doing that. I'm used to my credit card companies sending me a new credit card when something happens. And I like calling them and saying when someone defrauded me. Okay. Um, so the, so the, the incremental value of the user experience in UI is, is, not great for just spending money in that one use case. I think there are a lot of use cases for cryptocurrencies. Um, but in, in that use case, we have an infrastructure for that. Most second and third world countries don't have infrastructure for credit cards and debit cards. And so what they use today are mobile minutes. Um, and so basically you go to random corner shop, you hand them some local currency and, and they send you mobile minutes via the, whatever the carrier is in that country. Um, that's what currently exists. I'm, I'm very inclined to think we would trend towards, in some of these countries, uh, bank version or, or, or government versions of, you know, potentially that country's currency. Whether it's stable is a different question. Yeah. Cool. And then you have a tweet that says, I believe OSS stablecoin projects are the most susceptible to copycat attacks. Uh, most of this, the cryptocurrency movement is based around this idea of open source software. And specifically when you um, uh, deploy a smart contract to, you know, something like the Ethereum network, everyone can see how that smart contract works. So in this scenario, I'm actually talking about the alternative to uh, fiat backed ones. I'm talking about uh, the maker dies and the makers and the, the, the carbons and the different types of either algorithmic back or crypto backed uh, cryptocurrencies, sorry, not cryptocurrencies, stable coins. Those will definitely have copycats. That doesn't necessarily mean the copycat will win. Um, there are a lot of reasons a copycat could win. Generally, the more centralization of one of these entities uh, will probably allow for it to trend towards winning so long as the centralization um, has a value extracted element, i.e. the people who are extracting value have a capacity to market um, do business development um, and to do all the things they're in, they're basically incentivized to do the offline stuff. But I, I do believe where creator or developer that is extracting value trends towards not being relevant or not providing value, um, then then these type of uh, entities or organization organisms stable coins will will definitely trend towards copycats that um, remove the extractive element, i.e. The, not, the, the developer creator who's no longer providing value is kind, of an, is kind of the idea behind that. Outside of centralization, how can developers or teams defend against that? Yeah, I mean, the whole name of the game uh, is 
offline business development. You want to get integrated in all the places. You want people using the app. You want to provide a better user experience. You want to be integrated in the apps. You want to be integrated in the exchanges. These are all things that occur offline. These are the things that are necessary to be successful. Separately, you know, in, in Maker or, or things like that, um, you need people wanting to hold uh, MKR, which are essentially MKR with Maker is essentially the shareholder equity portion of a bank balance sheet. Maker's really cool. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about that project. I question uh, whether their exact metrics and formulas are correct. I don't think they've, it probably addresses um, market aberration events, but um, what it represents is, is very similar to what a bank balance sheet looks like. Uh, and the maker is the shareholder equity portion of that. They're the people that need to show up and hold this thing up if things are going south. And uh, you need people who are capable of holding this thing up. And so that's why you're seeing uh, Polychain or whoever buy large portions of this because there's definitely upside for them, but they're, they're, they're also potentially signing up for you know, other type of uh, support mechanisms for the for maker. Cool. So we're at the end of our podcast length. Um, where can people find out more about you on the internet or about your work? Uh, so on Twitter, I'm LWSN Baker, B-A-K-E-R. I tweet a whole lot about stable coins there. Um, also, you know, general cryptocurrency movement and future of finance and security tokens is a lot of what I talk about there. Uh, so yeah, so I'd check me out on Twitter. Cool. Well, Lawson, thanks for coming on the show. Cool. Thanks. Appreciate it.